Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. Uh, where were all of you last week? <laughs> I was here and none of my friends came. John, chapter 4. While you're turning there, I'll just take a moment to remind our members and those who are joining today. Very important congregational meeting on Sunday evening, January 6th. I hope that you all plan to attend. Uh, that will be here in the sanctuary at 4.30 in the afternoon. That'll be January 6th at 4.30. Today we return to our series in the Gospel of John. We'll be looking at verses 43 through 54. Please follow along as I read. After the two days, he, Jesus, departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Then he was going down, or excuse me, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And so we asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray once more. Father, we pray the words of the song that we just sung, that you would cause your church to hunger for your ways. Your ways are laid out for us in your word. And so work in us a desire to be more like our Savior, the Lord Jesus, to live a life of faith according to the word. We pray, Father, that what we have not, you would give us, what we know not, you would teach us, and what we are not, you would make us. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hopefully, if you've been with us in this series for these several weeks now, uh, you could remember the purpose statement that John gives for his gospel. I wonder if I ask you to give the reference, if you could tell me where that's found. It's in John chapter 20, verse 31. Uh, and there, in John 20, verse 31, John talks about these signs that have been recorded in his gospel. There's seven of them in particular. Today, in our text, we have the second of the signs. And verse 31 says that these have been written, these, these signs, they've been written, they've been recorded, so that you, the reader, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose for the whole book, that we would see what Jesus has done, who he said he is, and we would believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we would have eternal life. And so if we come to this text this morning, which is a record of the second of Jesus' signs, and we don't believe on him as the Christ, the Son of God, 
We're missing the whole purpose for which this sign is recorded. This text is given to us. This record is given to us to elicit our faith in the Lord Jesus. So that's my prayer for us this morning as we look at these verses that Christ himself would work in our hearts the gift of faith, that our hearts would behold Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, as I said, this is the second of Jesus' signs that we'll be considering this morning. But before we do that, uh, we're given a large amount of context for this miracle Jesus does, this sign he performs. And the context is given for us in verses 43 through 45. And there's some things we have to observe there before we can study the text properly. So uh, before I get into my outline, which is just three simple points this morning that we'll move through fairly quickly, I want to set the stage for this sign uh, that Jesus performs. And the setting of the stage is recorded in those three verses, verses 43, 44, 45. Let's read them again together. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Let me remind you of some of the geography that we've seen so far in John's gospel. Uh, in chapter 2, Jesus is in Galilee. Galilee is Jewish turf. Okay, so you have Jerusalem here, Samaria here, and Galilee's up here. Okay? In chapter 2, Jesus is in Galilee. He's in a town called Cana, and it's at uh, a wedding in Cana that Jesus performs his first sign, and that is turning uh, water into wine. And there, uh, toward the end of that account of that sign, we read that he did this to reveal his glory to his disciples, and they believed on him. Well, then after that, he returns to Judea, to Jerusalem, and is there for uh, one of the regular feasts, and it's there that he cleanses the temple. And he's there for all of John chapter 3 as well, his encounter with Nicodemus. And it's there where we read those famous words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So the latter part of chapter 2, all through chapter 3, Jesus is in Judea. And then in chapter 4, he's on his way to Galilee, but he stops in Samaria, in Sychar. And that's where he has this famous interaction with the woman at the well. And now we read toward the end of chapter 4, He's, he's moving along. He's leaving Sychar now. He's leaving the great revival behind there in that Samaritan city. And he's going back into Galilee. That's what verse 43 tells us. And then we read verse 44, which is this little, in, in my ESV, it's in parentheses. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Jesus is going to Galilee. That's part of the motherland. That's Jewish turf. And he's going there, why? The text says, for, Jesus said, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Does anyone see a problem there? If you've been tracking with the series so far, we know that Jesus is not especially well-received by the Jews, and we're going to see that big time in the next eight chapters or so, but already in John 1, verse 11, he came to his own, that is, his own countrymen, he came to the Jews, and his own received him not. Jesus was not embraced by his fellow countrymen, by his fellow kinsmen. And we read in our text that Jesus is going to Galilee for, like, like this is the reason, Jesus himself would testify that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Now, I don't know, if just reading that kind of broad brushstroke, surface level type reading, that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Like, they don't like me there, so I'm going there. 
Like you just saw revival in Samaria. A whole town came out and followed the Lord Jesus and believed on him because of his word. Like stay there where they like you, where they receive your word, where, where the fields are ripe to harvest, as Jesus says. But he says, no, 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 I'm going to Galilee for prophet has to wander in his hometown. And the commentators really have no idea what to do with this. Some of the translations in the English text have no idea what to do with this. If you're reading from the NIV, that word for is not there. It says now in verse 44. Now Jesus had said a prophet is without honor in his hometown. Because whoever translated the NIV doesn't quite understand why Jesus would go to Galilee if he's opposed, right? That's the NIV being, being the NIV taking some liberties there. But there's no getting around in the original Greek text. That word for is there. And it's indicative of the reason why Jesus is going into Galilee. Listen, remember, Jesus gets pushed around by nobody. Uh, He's on a definite mission sent from his father. Everything he does is deliberate. He knows he's going to be opposed in Galilee, and for that reason, he's going there. Jesus sets his agenda. He and his father together work out this plan. He's going to Galilee, and he knows that there he's going to be opposed. And we're going to see in the chapters that unfold, it's precisely that opposition that Jesus stirs up in Galilee and Judea among the Jews that leads to him going to the cross. Just in chapter 5, 20 verses later, they're planning to kill him. And again in chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 11. And so my Christian friend here this morning, I want you to see in that little word for, Jesus purposing to go into the heart of opposition, That word is there for you. Jesus left that revival behind and went into the belly of the beast, the heart of opposition where he is going to be killed because he had a mission to save sinners like yourself. And so he leaves Samaria and he goes into Galilee. But then the picture gets a little bit more uh, confusing here when we read verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So here's the progression. Verse 43, he's going to Galilee. Verse 44, they don't like him in Galilee. Verse 45, they welcome him in Galilee. There's a little bit of tension there, right? How do you make sense of that? He's going to Galilee, they don't like him there. And then verse 45, they welcome him there. What What do we make of this? Here's how I think you ease the tension. Our interpretation of this passage hinges on how we understand this welcome that the Galileans give to Jesus. So it's in the next words of verse 45 that qualify this welcome. It says, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. They're talking about his signs. They're talking about his miracles, not his teachings, Not who he said he was. This is not joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. This is, oh yeah, the hometown boy is back. Our miracle working boy. He's come home. Why don't you show us some of your tricks? Turn some water into wine. Heal some of our kids. Why don't we give you some bread and some fish and you can multiply it miraculously and feed us all. This is, is, yeah, great. Our, our, Our boy's back. And he can do some stuff for us. It's a far cry from true saving faith. They welcome him purely for the signs he's been doing. Now contrast that with how the Samaritans welcomed him just a few verses earlier. And I do think John intends us to see a contrast. 
So remember John 4, 45, the Galileans welcome him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. Now look back just a few verses, verses 40 through 42. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know this is indeed the Savior of the world. You see the contrast there. He's welcomed in both places. When the Samaritans invite him, come stay in our town for another two days. He's welcomed in both places, but why is he welcomed in Galilee and why is he welcomed in Samaria? The Galileans welcome him because they had seen the miracles at the feast. Oh, they drank the good wine. They said, why don't you come on our wedding? Drink some of our water and that good wine. The Samaritans, though, they welcome him. They believe on him because of his own word. And they proclaim him to be the Christ, the Savior of the world. And that is the best kind of faith. That is true saving faith. He didn't even do any miracles in Samaria, if you think about it, other than supernaturally reading that whole woman's life without knowing anything about her previously. But he tells these thirsty people that he's the Christ and that he's willing to give them eternal life, and they respond with faith. And the Lord smiles on this kind of faith. The Samaritans welcome him because of his life-giving words, but the Jews, the Galileans, they welcome him because they saw what he did. That's what verse 45 says. They welcome him because of his miracles, because of his tricks, not because of who he was or because of what he said about himself. And the rest of this gospel is the story of what the Jews will do to him when they increasingly find out who he is, who he says he is, what he says his miracles meant, namely, that he's God. The posture of these Galileans is that if, if you're the hometown boy that's bringing wine to the party, great. We're proud of you, boy. We've got a seat at the head of the table for you. But if you're telling us that you're the Christ, the Son of God, we'll nail you to a tree. And that's indeed what they do to him as they discover who he is. It really is tragic, these verses. In verses 43 through 45. He came to his own, his own didn't receive him. They may have welcomed him, but they didn't receive him. Reminds me of the words that Jesus said toward the end of his earthly ministry recorded in Matthew 23. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, prophets without honor in his hometown, city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. So listen, I don't see in these words in verse 45 this welcome that they're giving Jesus anything approximating what we saw earlier in chapter 4. Anything approximating saving faith. This is not positive. This is super Official. He came to his own and they may have welcomed him, but they did not receive him. It's not the main point of the text here, but I'll just make an application on the side. Today, in our context, there's a way to superficially welcome Jesus into your life and not really receive him for who he is, for what he is as Savior and Lord. Lots of people out there saying they're Christians, identifying themselves with Jesus, giving him some sort of place in their life, but a far cry from true saving faith. A far cry from true discipleship that counts the cost and follows after Jesus come what may. 
Listen, you don't get to, to welcome Jesus and give him just a little part in your heart. Like you sit here, you do these things for me, perform these functions, and I'll say I'm a Christian. That's not true Christianity. That's superficial. That's shallow. That's nothing close to saving faith. True faith embraces Jesus for all that he is, as the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And true Christianity, true faith, follows Jesus as a disciple, takes up the cross daily, and stakes all that we are on all that he is. That's what it means to receive Christ himself. So the stage is set for this sign in verses 46 through 54, and it's not positive, but superficial and negative. Uh, Three headings to open up the sign itself now uh, in verses 46 through 54. Simply three questions we want to ask, and we'll move through these fairly quickly. The first is, what does this official want? What does the official want? Secondly, what does Jesus do? And thirdly, how does the official respond? What does the official want? What does Jesus do? How does the official respond? First of all, what does the official want? Look with me at verses 46 through 49. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Very simply, this official wants his son to be healed. Plain as day in the text. He wants his son to be healed. His son's at the point of death, the text says. That's a pretty good translation. He's, he's on the verge of dying. And out of desperation, this man comes to Jesus, who he's heard perform these miraculous signs, and he asks him to come down and heal his son. He knows that Jesus turned water into wine. He knows that Jesus is a miracle worker. He has reason to believe that Jesus can truly help him. And so with this need, he goes to him, believing that he can help him. Notice he's not asking for his sins to be forgiven. He's not asking Jesus how he can enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not asking Jesus to reveal his glory to him. He simply wants his son to be healed. And I think he sincerely believes Jesus can help him. And so he goes to Jesus. All right, second question we want to ask of the text, what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? The officials made his request. He wants his son to be healed. What does Jesus do? I think Jesus does essentially two things in the text. Two things, okay? First of all, he indicts the Jews for their fascination with signs. He indicts the Jews for their fascination with signs. Children, young people, I wonder if you know what that word indict means. It would mean, uh, normally in legal settings, to accuse someone or to charge someone. So Jesus is indicting the Jews or accusing them of being just fascinated with signs. We see this in Jesus' words in verse 48. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. You can't exactly see this in the English, but it's there in the Greek. The you there is plural. Okay, the you is plural. We could use that word in a singular form or a plural form, you. This is the plural you, like you Jews, you Galileans. Unless you all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. See, they don't believe Jesus on account of his words and on account of who he is, like the Samaritans had done. They want to see signs. 
You might be reminded of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1. Jews demand signs. You want to see some song and dance, some sort of miraculous display, and as long as that's present, they'll keep coming. Now, this raises an important question that I've avoided addressing up to this point in the series, but we'll try to address it now. How should we understand signs in John's gospel? How should we understand the signs? Are they good, bad? Are they grounds for faith? Are they not? And if you look up every reference to the word sign or every reference to Jesus' works or miracles that he did in his earthly ministry, you realize very quickly that John is painting a bit of a mixed picture in terms of how we should view the signs. There's essentially three ways that people view signs in John's gospel. One of them is absolutely positive and good and should be encouraged, and then two of them are negative. The the first, the positive way to view signs, is in the way Jesus commends his signs and his miraculous works as supporting evidence for his claim to be the Son of God. Jesus wants you to look at the things that he did, the miraculous things that he did, and he submits them in a number of places as evidence that he himself is the Christ, the Son of God. We get that in the purpose statement, right? John tells us, John 20, verse 30 and following, All these signs have been recorded. Why? These things have been written that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Look at the things he did. Who else could do this but God? A number of other texts in John's gospel make this point. John 5, verse 36, Jesus says, The testimony that I have is greater than that of John the Baptist, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. You saw the water turn to wine. You saw this boy healed. You saw the blind man uh, uh, given sight. You saw Lazarus raised from the dead. Who could do this other than God? You may not embrace my words, but look at these signs. Aren't they a testimony to you that I am, of course, the Christ, the Son of God? And in that sense, signs are presented positively. It's legitimate for us to look at the things God has done in His Son, Jesus Christ, and for that to draw out our hearts in faith. That's positive. That's good. That's the purpose for which this gospel was written. The two other usages of signs in John's gospel are negative. One, transparently so. The the second way to understand signs that is negative uh, would be uh, to be fascinated with signs that does not believe, excuse me, does not lead to saving faith. So you're just amazed by Jesus' miracles and the things he does and the things that he'll do for you. But when it comes to who he is and what he says those miracles mean, they don't bring about any faith at all. So think in John 6, for example, Jesus multiplies bread and fish into enough to feed 5,000 people, miraculous display of his power. And the people follow him across the sea. They think he's going to be their miracle worker to come and overthrow their overlords and to reign on the throne in Jerusalem. But as soon as they realize that he came to die that he came to suffer, that he's going to the cross, they all leave him. If that's who you are, we have nothing to do with that. If you're feeding our bellies, you're taking care of our families, you're healing our children, you're making it so that our wives won't have miscarriages, come on. You can be our Lord, whatever you want. But if you're going to the cross to die and we're called to follow you, we have nothing to do with that. That's an inherently negative way to understand the signs. And then the third way is also negative, and that would be to have real faith, true faith, 
but faith that has an undue attachment to the signs. So think here of doubting Thomas, John 20. Unless I see him, put my hands in the wounds, I will not believe. And Jesus is kind enough, gracious enough to accommodate Thomas's weak faith. And he comes and says, come on, Thomas, I'm here. Put your hands in the wounds. And then he says to Thomas, you see and believe. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. He accommodates Thomas's weak faith. Thomas is going to be in heaven, but it's not a positive thing to have this undue attachment like Thomas on miraculous signs and displays. So those are the three ways that signs are presented in the Gospel of John. Well, what way do we have signs presented in our text? Verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I think this is an unequivocally negative statement. Jesus is indicting the Jews broadly for their fascination with signs that fail to produce real faith. This isn't true faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. This is faith in the wonder worker who does stuff for Jews. That's what we have in our text. So Jesus, first of all, indicts the Jews for their fascination with signs. That's the first thing he does. But then secondly, he performs a sign by healing the man's son. So he does two things in our text. He indicts the Jews for their fascination with signs. Secondly, he performs a sign by healing the official's son. In other words, he essentially says, you care too much about signs. And then he performs a sign. Verse 49, the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Verse 54, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So Jesus does not despise this man's request, even though he recognizes there's this undue interest and fascination with signs. Appreciate how patient and gracious Jesus is toward this man. He doesn't say to him, all you care about is signs. You know what, you're not getting a sign from me. No, he's gracious. He's patient. He accommodates himself to this man's weak faith, even though he recognizes there's this undue attachment to Jesus' signs, even though he recognizes this man is purely coming in desperation. He says, I'm going to heal your son. You're too fixated on these signs, but I love you, and I'm going to be patient with you. And he performs the sign. But notice also Jesus' sovereign power here. With all the talk about signs, you might miss the big thing in the text, namely that he heals this boy with a word. He doesn't have to make a special potion, doesn't even have to be in the same room with the kid. He just utters a word, and the boy is healed. The Lord Christ heals this boy as sovereign Lord of the universe, as the Word incarnate who was made flesh, and who indeed created the world and created this boy. He has power over his life and over his blood cells and over his heartbeat and has authority to say, go, your son will live. Well, that's what Jesus does. He indicts the Jews for their fascination with signs. Secondly, he heals this boy. Now, third question we want to ask, how does the official respond? What does the official want? What does Jesus do? How does the official respond? And I believe he responds with true saving faith. Some people don't see true faith here, I do. Not only that, I see 
a graduation in faith throughout the text. I think his faith grows as the text unfolds. Some don't see that here, so this is my interpretation. I'll present it to you. You judge for yourself, okay? I want to demonstrate that this man has faith, true saving faith, and show how it graduates as the text unfolds. So there's sort of three levels to this man's faith. Okay, first, we get it in verses 47 through 49. There, this man simply comes to Jesus and asks him for help. My son's about to die. I heard you were in the region. I'm coming to you. I'm asking you to heal my son. Okay, now he comes to Jesus just like any other Galilean would come to Jesus. He wants him to do something for him. He doesn't worship Jesus like John the Baptist did in John 1. He doesn't proclaim him to be the Messiah and the King of Israel like the disciples did. He doesn't acknowledge him to be the Savior of the world like the woman at the well and the Samaritans did in chapter 4. He just wants Jesus to do something for him. And in this sense, he's just like all the other Jews who welcome him. Okay? But I think we could be a little more charitable than that as well. He is coming to Jesus. He doesn't dismiss Jesus as a fraud. He at least has some initial sincere belief that Jesus can do miracles. Maybe he's a little bit like Nicodemus. Remember in chapter 3 what Nicodemus says when he comes to Christ? He says, you know, Rabbi, we know that you must be a teacher sent from God. No one could do these things that you're doing unless God is with him. Maybe that's something of what this man is going through and experiencing. Is it true saving faith at this point? Probably not, but he is coming to Jesus. There is something about him, something wonderful there that draws this man to Jesus. Now, now the second level in this man's faith. Here's the graduation of faith in this text, I think. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Now I'm reading into those words that the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. But listen, he didn't see Jesus do anything spectacular, at least not yet. There's no song and dance here at this point. There's no supernatural display. Jesus simply speaks a word to him, go, your son will live. And the man gets up, he stops crying, he collects himself, and he goes on his way to see his boy. I see here at least some form of true faith. Remember, he's an official which means he probably worked for Herod. He could have tried to compel Jesus, no, 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 come down to the house. I want to see that, that he really is going to live, and I want you to be there, and I'll have your head if he doesn't live. He doesn't do that. He doesn't try to compel him to go. He could berate Jesus and harass him into coming. He doesn't do that. He responds to Jesus' word, and he believes, and he goes on his way. Similar language, right, to what we saw a few verses earlier with the Samaritans. They believed on account of his word. Every time you see that statement in John's gospel, it's indicative of true faith. Jesus himself will say, just about 25 verses from now in John 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death to life. So I think there's true faith here. He believed the word Jesus spoke to him. But if we're to see true faith here, I think it's young faith. It's only initial faith because I do see a third level of growth in this man's faith 
That's found verses 51 through 53. So he's believed the word that Jesus spoke to him that his son will live. Verse 51 says, As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And so he asked them the hour when, when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, that would be one o'clock. You start at 6 a.m., seven hours later, one o'clock. Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. But he believed back up in verse 50, right? Why does it again say that he believed in verse 53? Like, did he have faith when he was with Jesus? Jesus spoke to him and then lost it somewhere on the way back home, and now he's getting it back again? How is it that you could say, John, in verse 50, he believed, and then just three verses later in verse 53 say he believed? Believed again? It was the first time false faith and the second time true faith? What does he mean here? Well, I think we're meant to see a very simple a very basic and a profoundly important point about the nature of faith here in these verses. And that is that true faith, true saving faith, can grow and can diminish by degrees. True faith can grow, can diminish by degrees. It's not like you just have it or you don't. I mean, that's true in one sense. But true faith can grow and it can diminish. So I'm just asking questions of the text. Did he have faith in verse 50 when he received Jesus' word? I think so. Did he have more faith or stronger faith in verse 53 upon seeing the fulfillment of Jesus' word? Yes, I think so. He doesn't have faith for the first time in verse 53, nor does he have faith for the second time as though he lost the faith he had at first. Rather, the faith he already had in verse 50 upon seeing the fulfillment of Jesus' word, grows. Verse 53 is the blossoming of the seed of faith that was planted in verse 50. And this is not inconsistent with the nature of faith. True faith can diminish and true faith can grow by degrees. And don't we find that true in our own experience as Christian people? Jesus promises us something in his word. And we believe him. But it's hard to believe to keep the faith, and doubt creeps in, and our faith fluctuates, and some days it's strong, and some days it's weak, and then we see the fulfillment of Jesus' words, and we wonder, why did we ever doubt him, right? There, there are some days you feel faith is low. That candle is burning low, and some days it's just a roaring fire. Faith can grow, and faith can diminish, and I think that's happening in our text. This man sincerely believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, but the next day when he, he sees this amazing fulfillment of that word, his faith grows and increases, and he has stronger faith in the Lord Jesus. Well, so much for our exposition of the text. There's just a few lessons I want to draw now in closing. What are lessons for us that we can learn, that we can take home in light of this text? In drawing these lessons, I'd like to ask just two simple questions, and the first is this. What does this text teach us about Jesus? What does this text teach us about Jesus? I think it teaches us at least three things. First of all, this text teaches us that Jesus has all authority and all power. All authority and all power. He's sovereign over all. And he can do things that no one else can do. 
Jesus Christ, as God's own son, is the only one authorized to do the works of the Father. He heals this man's son simply by breathing out a word, which means he has control over our bodies and over our very lives. And I say this here this morning to my unbelieving friend who's with us. You need to know that our faith as Christians is in a Savior who has power over all. You may not acknowledge him as having all power and authority, but it doesn't change a thing. My friend, Christ doesn't need your approval to have this kind of power. He doesn't need for you to acknowledge his authority in your life in order for him to possess it. I read this morning, excuse me, this week, um, an interesting quote in a scholarly journal. This famous professor wrote this, the mind must accept an authority before it can become operative. The mind must accept an authority before it can become operative. I'm going to give you six seconds to think about that statement. That's just dumb. <laughs> like if I commit a crime and the police come to take me away and I say, oh, my mind has not acknowledged your authority so it can't be operative. How do you think that's going to go? That's some postmodern nonsense. Listen, you don't need to acknowledge Jesus' authority in order for it to be operative. Listen, you breathe, you take your next breath at Jesus' command, whether you acknowledge that or not. Your blood is flowing veins at Jesus' command. You live only because Christ himself has commanded it, it, commanded it to be so. And so what are you going to do? Will you acknowledge his authority? My friend, I call on you this morning to repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to acknowledge that you live and breathe at his command. Second lesson this text teaches us about Jesus. Jesus is patient with weak faith. Jesus is patient with weak faith. Jesus doesn't put the man off. When this man is there pleading with Jesus in desperation to heal his son, Jesus doesn't say to him, no, 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 come back to me when you have better faith. Don't, don't come crying to me unless your faith is strong. Now, this man comes in desperation to Jesus because he's the only person he can come to. And Jesus does not despise his weak faith. He knows this man is putting too much stock in signs. He knows this man is perhaps asking the wrong questions and maybe he doesn't have the best and most commendable motives. He knows his faith is flimsy and weak, but that doesn't stop him from acting on this man's behalf. Why? Because Jesus is patient with weak faith. Also, don't see Jesus here like rolling his eyes and reluctantly performing a miracle. He healed the boy because he loved him. And he helps this man because he loved him. And because he hates death and because he hates sin and because he wants to help this man and wants to see his faith strengthened. My friend, Jesus is patient with weak faith. He will be patient with your weak faith. You go to him and you're you're not as full of faith and as strong in faith as you ought to be, he'll still receive you. Salvation does not depend on faith's strength, but on faith's object. Let me say that again. Salvation does not depend on faith's strength, but on faith's object, namely the Lord Jesus himself. Third lesson to learn about Jesus in this text, Jesus always fulfills his word. Jesus always fulfills his word. 
He told the man, go, your son will live. Simple word, go, your son will live. Would it have mattered if the man fretted the whole way home? Really, though? Is he going to live? Is he going to be all right? Should I have asked Jesus to go ahead and come down here just to make sure? Can I really trust him? Would it have mattered if the man fretted? At what point was it certain that that boy was going to live? Jesus spoke those words. Go, your son will live. It wouldn't have mattered at all if this man had his doubts. This man had his struggles. It wouldn't have changed the outcome. Why? Because Jesus always fulfills his word. And so what is Jesus telling you this morning? What has he promised you this morning? Jesus says to you, I will work all things together for your good. He'll keep his word. Jesus says to you, I will never leave you or forsake you. How precious in a world of people who abandon us, let us down, lie to us, disappoint us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus will keep his word. Jesus says to you, I feed the birds and clothe the flowers. I'll feed and clothe you. Jesus says, I will save you to the uttermost. Brothers and sisters, he said it, he'll do it. My dear doubting friend, when Jesus said to this man, your son will live, it was sure. And when Jesus says to you, I will forgive your sins and remember your lawless deeds no more, his word is sure, whether you fret about it or not. Because Jesus always keeps his word. Okay, there's a second question I want to ask of the text and we'll be done. What does this text teach us about faith? What does the text teach us about faith? Two simple lessons. First of all, true faith trusts Jesus' words and finds confirmation in the signs. Trust Jesus' words, finds confirmation in the signs. My faith doesn't rest in miracles. My faith rests in Christ. And when I see the signs, they confirm to me again that he is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. The signs are meant to be a help to my faith, but they are not the object of my faith. Faith rests in Christ and finds confirmation in the signs. Second and final lesson here. Faith can and should grow with experience. Crucially important point for the Christian life. Faith can and should grow with experience. Our faith in Christ should grow with our experience with Christ. So it was with this man. He had a a deepening of faith as he gained more experience with Christ. The longer you're a Christian, the more reason you have to trust Jesus. As you find day after day, month after month, year after year that his promises are true and that he is faithful to his word, your faith should grow. Listen, this is true of every Christian here. You have more reason to have faith in Christ now than you did when you first believed. You say, what do you mean? Brother, sister, hasn't he been faithful all this time? How many times has he kept his word? My friend, remember and recount God's past kindnesses and mercies to you. Call to mind his faithfulness in times gone by. Think back on seasons in which he delivered you and upheld you. Recall those times when he met sweetly with you and spoke to you through his word. Call to mind the many times he answered your prayers and heard your cries. Brothers and sisters, our faith in Christ should grow with our experience with Christ. 
just like in a good marriage, the kind that lasts for half a century or more. Did you have love when you first married your spouse? Yes. But ought it to grow and deepen and to mature the longer you're together. The more experience you have with this person, the more your love ought to deepen with them. It's like that with faith. Has Christ not been faithful? Has he not kept his word and all his promises to you? My wife and I were talking about this. It's amazing. You know, you'll, you'll be in a season of your life where you're discouraged and you're downcast and you're struggling with doubt. And then the Lord in some wonderful way shows himself to be faithful and you just feel ashamed. Like, why did I ever doubt him? This is always true. There is never a good reason to doubt our Savior. He is always faithful to his word. And brothers and sisters, as we grow in the faith, as we grow in our experience with Christ, our faith in Christ ought to deepen and ought to increase. May it be so. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that we, like this man, would trust in you and believe on you. Not only for your mighty power, which is at work in our lives, but for who you are as the Christ, the Son of God. We pray, Father, that you would cause each one of us here this morning to acknowledge your authority, your power in our lives. We pray, Father, that you would give to each one of us the gift of faith. We pray, Father, that the Lord Jesus as faith's object would appear lovely to us this morning. And we pray that as we grow in our knowledge of him, our experience with him, that you would allow our faith to increase and to grow as well. Set our hearts, our faith, our affection upon the Lord Jesus this morning, we pray. In your son's name, amen.